One of the most powerful stories of human deliverance in history may be that of Ernest Shackleton, who led an expedition to Antarctica during World War I. Their mission was to be the first to make the 1,800-mile trip across the Antarctic, but they didn't even make it to the ice continent. Shackleton demonstrated how to get his crew through certain death. But in our study today, Dave Wurtzen exposes a father in the Old Testament who did far more. It's probably the greatest story of deliverance, human story of deliverance, that's ever happened. It was August 3rd, 1914. That's when World War I broke out. Not many of you were alive back then, but that's exactly when World War I broke out. And the English were facing having to invade, go over to France and try to protect against the Germans, the Prussians that were attacking. And you've all heard of Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill still decided he was the Lord of the Admiralty to send the Imperial Antarctic Expedition. This is back in the old days of Imperial England, and they used those fancy titles. So the name of this expedition was the Imperial Antarctic Expedition. Their goal was to go 1,800 miles from the edge of Antarctica all the way across to the other edge. That's like taking a trip from Dallas to where I was raised up in upstate New York. That was about 1,800 miles. They were going to do that across the South Antarctic continent. No one had ever done that before. Someone had reached the center. Someone beat them to that. But they were going to be transcontinental in Antarctica. And so on August 8th, the Endurance with strong Norwegian oak sides, specially designed to get this crew of brave British sailors to the edge of the continent, headed out with a man named Ernest Shackleton. If you ever wanted a man to get you through hard times, this is the man you want. His ship, the Endurance, left British waters about August 8th. He actually joined them later on. He went to Argentina, Buenos Aires, and then he joined his crew, and they started heading towards what they thought was going to be a landing on the coast of Antarctica. They never made it. In January of 1915, the Endurance became engulfed in the ice. In other words, the the sea, as they moved towards Antarctica, began to close in on them. It froze. It's kind of like where I was raised as a kid. In the wintertime, suddenly, Scroon Lake would freeze. And we could bring big dump trucks across. And my brother and I, when we were kids, would hike a mile out on this ice that was a foot thick. Well, man, our little scrawny little ice up in the Adirondacks was nothing compared to this Antarctic Ocean ice that's beginning to crush the endurance. Shackleton had his men set up thinking that when the ice thaws, that the ship will be released and we'll be able to continue our journey But when the ice began to thaw, rather than the ship kind of being pushed up, it began to sink down. And as it became slushy, the ship, suddenly the ice was just breaking through those timbers, and they began to take on water. Shackleton had to order his crew off the ship. And so they took all their supplies, they took their three lifeboats, and they're now on a floating sheet of ice. And they begin to drift, and you're like, ice 
and the, some of the ocean around it is, is unfrozen, and then you have these big ice floats. They're floating in the Antarctic Ocean, and they float more than 350 miles, and then their ice breaks in half. So Shackleton has to decide what we do, and as they're floating there, he decided we got to launch those boats And so he launched the boats. These are just little, like when I was a kid up in the Adirondacks, we had these old whaling boats that were kind of like these big metal things that they used in whaling, and we used to use them to row around the island. And Shackleton had these rescue boats that weren't even that big. One of them was only 20 feet long. And he launches these three boats with all of his men in these boats. And for five days, they're at the mercy of the worst ocean in the world with the biggest seas and the most horrific conditions. I mean, you got a little taste. Remember the carnival? They're out in the Gulf of Mexico and they're in a great big ocean liner and they lose their power, but you saw the fear and, you know, this is going to be horrible. We're all going to die. Well, the British back in the early 1900s, they were a different breed. These guys are on these three little boats and for five days... They're at the mercy of the ocean, but they finally land on a place that was called Elephant Island. Now, Elephant Island was 800 miles away from where they needed to be because the only hope for deliverance was for some whaling vessels to come from South Georgia, and if they would be able to realize where Shackleton's party was, they would be able to find it, but the World War I is exploding Everyone thinks that the endurance has been lost. So here is Shackleton on this barren, frigid, cold island, Elephant Island, waiting for something to happen. As he's waiting there, he begins to deliberate. He realizes, man, we are far from the shipping lanes. There's absolutely no way that anyone's going to spot us. My men are going to be starved to death, and they've already been out in these ice floats for month after month after month, more than a year. What am I going to do? He finally comes up with this incredibly bright idea. He takes his smallest but strongest rescue boat. He takes five of his men, including himself, and he takes his best sailor, and they decide to go 800 miles across the Drake Ocean. I was close to this when we went a cruise down around the Cape, around the the south of of, uh, Argentina and Chile. And we sat in the Magellan Straits where it's calm, where Magellan sailed through and you would be calmed. We were trying to get out around the continent. We had to wait in this great big ocean liner because the waves out there were 50 and 60 feet high. And so that gave me a little bit. Even in fact, when we did actually make the rounding of of Cape Hope, we realized it was still rough. And I just can't imagine this 20-foot boat, these six guys get in it. And they sailed for 15 days across the ocean. And they finally see the cliffs of South Georgia. On the other side of South Georgia is the whaling village that they need to get to. And yet hurricane winds come ripping around the northern end of of South Georgia Island and they have to sit there and face the raging of a hurricane sea. In fact, there was a Chilean ship that was sunk at exactly that time, and Shackleton, with his men, made it through in a 20-foot rescue boat. 
Then they tried, after the hurricane settled, they tried to get around to get around the north side to sail into the fishing village. But they realized that the prevailing winds after the hurricane had passed, they're going to be blown right by and out into the Atlantic Ocean. And so they have to land their ship on the wrong side of South George Island. Shackleton gets a couple of his men, leaves three men behind. And with just a 50-foot rope and an atch, an atch is a carpenter's tool that they used with rough lumber. It looks like an axe and like a pick. They had just a 50-foot rope and one of those. And they start to hike the 38 miles up over the range so they can get down to this village. Some mountaineers try to do it several years later fully equipped mountaineers. And when they got into the fishing village, they said, we have no idea how Shackleton and his men made it. They took their ach and they would hit it into the ice and they'd pull themselves up. They would tie the rope around it and pull another person up. They got up over the ridge. If you've ever, I don't know, probably not many of you have have tried to hike on, on ice like that. But like when you drive up to Lake Placid, there's great big ice flows. And you see these people in the winter. You see like six or seven, eight guys and, and girls that are up there on these cliffs. And they're putting their pictures in. And then they pull themselves up. And just like you rock climb, only they do it on ice. Shackleton is doing that with hardly any equipment at all. They get to the top of the ridge. They start coming down. They can actually see the fishing village. And they're blocked. There's nothing but a sheet of ice between them and the village. And they traverse up and down looking for a place they can get down, which you often do when you're hiking. There was no place to get down. So they just sat on their behind and they just let it rip. And if they died, they died. They slid down this ice sheet. They made it. And they walked into the village. This is a more than a year after they became lost at sea. And these guys haven't taken a bath. They haven't shaved. No change of clothes. You can imagine what they look like. When they landed in the fishing village, the people thought someone had arrived from another planet. Finally, they recognized Shackleton. And he immediately organized a rescue party. And they went around to the other side of the island. And they rescued the three men that he left on the other side of South Georgia. Then he has to rescue his men that are way across 800 miles away on Elephant Island. He tries to commandeer a ship, finally gets a ship. They try to go three times. They try to reach his men. His men are on a little sliver of this this flat place on the island, and they're waiting. Shackleton is saying, I will return for you, kind of like MacArthur in World War II later. He says, I will come back. So these men are bivouac in Antarctica, 800 miles away from nowhere. No way they'd be delivered, but their commanding leader, Shackleton, said, I'll be back for you. And so they hunker down, and they're waiting. The second time Shackleton tried, still couldn't make it. The ice blocked them. The third time, finally, they made it. And the headlines went out, all safe, all well. If you want to read this story, it's called Endurance. It's probably the greatest story of human deliverance. But I want to tell you an even better story today. I want to tell you about someone that's even greater than Shackleton. 
I want to tell you about a daddy that got his family through even worse than the Drake Sea. And I want to challenge every one of you dads about whether you're going to join this dad in helping your family to escape the peril that lies ahead. His man's name is Noah. Turn to Genesis chapter 6. All of you remember from Sunday school days the story of Noah and the flood. How many of you have ever heard of Noah? So Noah's still pretty famous. We know Noah's really, really famous, okay? Just to have it set up, I want you to get into the flow of the redemptive story. Last week, we studied about the very first man that was born, firstborn son named Cain. He ended up murdering his brother. And we learned all about his as dads, especially we need to take the lead in our family and warning our little kids from the time they're small about the danger of getting angry with God, of being jealous of others, and having to explode in anger. And I told you about some of my grandsons, like H.A., that's beating up on little brother Zeke, and how we need to work from the time they're really small to really allow Jesus. You don't tell them, don't get angry. And you need to solve your anger. You need to be telling from the time the little kids, Jesus wants to help you to fully recognize your anger. He wants to help you have a new heart. He's going to want to help you have a control that you don't give in to hitting your little brother. From the time they're little kids, I want you to be teaching your kids about grace. We teach our kids about good works. We yell at them about getting angry. We give them Sunday school lessons about why they shouldn't get angry. All of my little grandkids know before they come to Midlothian Bible Church, before they go into Sunday school class, they all know they shouldn't be angry. And so we teach them another hour, don't get angry. The real trick is how do you not give in to your anger, amen? How do you not give in to your anger? That's what we struggled with last week. We have a great deliverer that wants by grace to come into our heart. So we begin that line. The line of Cain explodes into even greater anger, even greater immorality as Lamech takes on the two women and treats them just as ornaments. And then he's full of vengeance and he to destroy anyone that attacks him. And the story of redemption in the Bible talks about on the, on the evil side, on the seat of the serpent, it's exploding into immorality. It's exploding into violence. So much so that when you begin chapter 6, it says that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married them and they produced these mighty men, these mighty men, and the Lord saw that the wickedness of man, the corruption of man, and the violence of man, and their thoughts were only evil continually. That's the way we begin chapter 6. So we've got a whole culture that is beginning to live for the power of man and living for the thrill that sexual experiences can have. That's the world we live in. As a believer, do you ever feel like I'm the only one that really believes in purity? I'm the only one that believes that you really need to have one man and one woman, that you need to enter into a sacred promise. Anybody feel like you're the only one doing that? Noah was the only one doing that. He's the only one that when it comes time for the flood, he's the only one that's going to make it through. At this time in the story, you've got a lot of people that were from the line of Seth and even some others from the line of Cain because we have many stories later that talk about how people that even seem to be on the wrong side decide to trust in the great I am. So the Lord is open to anybody in this room and anybody anywhere that responds to him. But we also need to face the fact that by the time he comes to Noah, the Lord is looking over the earth and it grieves him 
because he really is touched by the murder. He's really touched when families break up because of immorality. He really hurts. God isn't some distant force in the sky. He really enters. He pains. He grieves when our kids are sinning, just like we grieve when they sin. You grieve because he's your ultimate father. And so Genesis 6 describes a loving daddy in heaven that looks over the race that he's produced, and he sees that violence is erupting. So I want you to know, like, when you're tempted to get discouraged and feel like it's never been this bad before, the pre-flood world reminds you that the whole world would become with vengeance and murder. It's kind of like the Old West of people taking Colt 45s. Well, they didn't have those back then. But they're using their spears. They're using their bow and arrows. They're using their axes. They're using all their equipment to destroy each other. They're also being very immoral. The whole culture is filled with men that just see women and they just, they just take them and they exploit them sexually. It's a bad world. But then there's our daddy. Once you look at Genesis chapter 6, in the midst of that darkness, when these great, powerful men, you need to teach your kids from the time they're small, that as they go out into the world without God, there are really powerful men and women. They're the mighty people of all. Every ancient culture has a list of kings. Like the Sumerians have a king list. The Egyptians have their ancient history of their pharaohs. And in all of those cultures around the world, you can go to any culture around the world, they have an idea of these mighty, powerful kings. They're kind of like demigods. They're kind of like people that were unions of the gods with human beings. And all this idea of the powerful human beings. Pharaoh in Egypt thought he was God. And Moses is writing for Israelites against that false idea. So as you sit here this morning, you need to realize that your sons and daughters being raised in your home, as they rise up in the world, they're going to be tempted to begin to worship the powerful men and women with all their skills and all their pride and all that they can accomplish. And some of your kids are going to go away and say, I don't believe what you believe about God anymore because we can do it. And you need to make it really clear what that choice involves. And the Bible's really honest about it. And what Genesis 6 is saying is that the world was filled with what we call that hubris, that arrogance, that pride that we can solve everything. But then we read about one man, and this is the dad that I want you to be, In Genesis chapter 6, and the grandfather that I want you to be in, Genesis chapter 6, it says an amazing thing. Look what it says after all this description. It says, the Lord was grieved that I made them. Genesis chapter 6 verse 7. For I am grieved that I've made them, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is what Noah produced. This is the outflowing of Noah, which is what that little title And then we read this. Noah was a righteous man. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord, I want you to think about it. He became a righteous man. We want to think about what does that mean he became a righteous man. It says that he became blameless. Doesn't mean that he was totally sinless. In fact, the word there means is that he actually was a man of integrity. And we're going to think about what that means. That not that he never sinned, but Noah was a righteous man, but he was also a man that had integrity. And then it says a very important thing. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. 
So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all the people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Powerful words. What's happening? The very first thing I want you to see is that Noah decided to walk with God. Have you? As a dad, especially, as a grandfather, you take the lead in your family. If you're going to be like Noah, the whole world is walking according to human power. Powerful business people. You know, all the things you see on TV program in the movie about, you know, how the powerful people do their thing. That was all taking place in the pre-flood world. If you ever feel like at your work, like nobody paid any attention to God anymore and everything, Noah was there. But Noah decided, and you need to think about what you're going to decide. Noah decided, I'm not going to join the mighty people of the world. I'm going to walk with God. What about you? Remember God walked with Adam and Eve. It says he walked in the cool day even after they sinned and they ran away from him. And what it indicated is that God's practice was to walk with his people. When we had the line of Cain just blowing up in horrible violence, it says then Adam knew his wife and she produced Seth. And Seth produced Enosh. And Enosh at that time called upon the name of the Lord. In this story of Genesis, the seventh from Cain is Lamech, the man I told you about that produced bigamy and terrible murderous vengeance. But on the other side, in the line of Seth, the seventh from Seth is a man named Enoch. Enoch walked with God. And it says he lived so long and he walked with God. And he produced sons and daughters. After he produced sons and daughters, he walked with God. And then it says something really powerful, and the Lord took him. He was not, but the Lord took him. And Noah is now bridging the gap between the story of Cain and Abel and the story of Abram that we're going to begin next week, the father of the Jewish people and ultimately our father of faith. And Noah is the bridge man that shows us that even this world is filled with violence, there's those that choose to walk with God. What does it mean to choose to walk with God? Well, all of you walk with somebody. Every one of you dads this week and every one of you grandfathers and every one of you ladies, every one of you have been walking with somebody this week. It's who you hang with. Now, if you've just come this morning and you haven't said anything to God since last Sunday, if you haven't opened up this book since last Sunday, then you're walking with somebody else. I want you to really understand that. And if we talk together and you think about who you hang with, that's who you're walking with. And who you walk with, when you walk with somebody, that's where you're going to end up. So if you hang around with your buddies that don't believe in God, don't listen to him, you walk with him, you go to the bars with them, you go fishing with them, you do all kinds of things with them, not trying to reach them for Christ, but because that's what your thing is, then you're going to end up walking your whole life like that. And your kids will do exactly the same thing. And you need to think about where it's going to end up. Because who you walk with is where you're going to end up. Now, your walk with God begins by finding grace in the eyes of the Lord. A lot of us have the idea that Noah found merit in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, a whole bunch of you are convinced that the way you get right with God is you try to be a good person. I talk with men all the time that feel like, Dave, I could never be like you. Because you were raised with this stuff, and you're a good guy, and you're a preacher, and you must be so good. Well, talk to Mary. I'm not so good. I didn't find merit in the eyes of the Lord, and neither will you. I'm just like you. 
One of the terrible things in our Southern culture and our Texas culture is we all gather together on Sunday morning and we're all meritorious. And I hear it said all the time. A lot of my unbelieving friends, I say, hey, you need to come out. They say, I don't want to do that. And they say two things. Number one, I don't want to go because I'm not good enough. When I go to church, all those people are good. That's one thing my unbelieving friends say. And I want you to work really, really hard. We need to be working hard to connect with those unbelievers and have friendship with those unbelievers. And by the way, most of them aren't going to come here first. So you need to do it in your parties at home. You need to do it in going fishing. You need to do it in playing golf. And one of the things you need to get across to your unbelieving friends is, I found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I'm not any different than any of you. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Satan constantly tells unbelievers, the reason you can't get close to God is because you're not good enough. So hang with me because at least you'll be honest as you hang with me. That's a lie. The guy of the universe says that we receive grace. You know what grace means? You don't deserve it. And there's a strong part of you, you all say, oh, man, I love amazing grace. How many of you love amazing grace? Why don't you live like it? Because almost all of you are basically living on a meritorious dynamic, a principle of merit. If your husband treats you good, you love him. If your husband doesn't take out the garbage, you don't make love to him for two weeks until he learns to take out the garbage. That's marriage. You husbands, if your wife has your meal ready on time for some of you guys and you're kind of the old traditional person and the wife comes in and has your meal ready, if she does that, then you give her the money for the groceries the next time. If she doesn't, you're done. That's marriage. In fact, almost all of you, if you think through this morning, your natural way of relating to each other is 50-50. And our whole culture, because it doesn't work out very well, so we end relationships. We find someone else that'll give me 50-50. That isn't grace at all. Grace is that I don't deserve it. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The Lord looked at Noah, and a miracle of love took place. Like, I don't even understand, but for some mysterious reason, the Lord said, Noah... You're going to be the man that carries through the promise to produce the redemptive seed into the world. So Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. When you find grace, I want you to understand something. It says that he found grace in the Lord, but then it says he was a righteous person. So if you say, well, I've received grace, and I say, well, are you obeying the Lord's commands? Are you, by the power of the Spirit, living up to his standards? And you say, no, I don't even care about it. You're not saved by grace, though. This is really important. Being saved by grace really produces obedience in your life. And it's a process. But Noah was righteous. You know what it means to be righteous? It means that you conform to God's standard. And as God bestowed grace on Noah, Noah evidenced it by obeying God's standards. And God looked at his life. And and you see this in his family. You dads and grandfathers, your kids look at what you do and they look at what you really believe and 99.9% of them will follow in what you really are committed to. 
That's why it's so important. That's the principle. Noah was able to take his family because he really was a man that received grace. But there was concrete evidence in the way that he lived day by day as illustrated by this story. When the Lord told him to build an ark, that was one of the standards that the Lord said to Noah. Noah didn't say, no, man, I'm not going to build an ark. Man, there's never been rain. That's the stupidest thing in the world to build a great big gigantic boat that's bigger than a, than a football field. That's insane. We're hundreds and hundreds of miles here in the Middle East away from the Mediterranean Sea. I'm not going to build a boat. Noah is a man that obeys God, even when it looks totally crazy. I want to challenge you, as dads and grandfathers, obey God, even if you don't think it's going to work out. Because in the end, I, I, I want to challenge our church families. Just do it as an experiment. I'm going to obey the Lord and see if it works out. See if Obeying him and walking with him starts to work out. So Noah received grace. He was obedient to God's standards. He was a righteous man. Then he was blameless in his generation. This is what it means. It means that when you get to really know him, like Armstrong doesn't have integrity, the bike racer. He built his whole career that he was winning these big French races because he was working physically hard, and he was working out, and he even beat his cancer. And that was his great story, right? A lot of you follow this, right? I have a lot of friends. They love that story. Then we find out that he was taking drugs. He was taking enhancing things that would make him compete unfairly. The Hebrew word that's used for integrity, that's the opposite of that. It meant when you really got to know Lance Armstrong, he didn't have wholeness all the way down to his soul. That makes sense? What's really important to the dad and grandfather, one of the most important characteristics the Holy Spirit is trying to generate in our life, the Lord is trying to generate wholeness. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that you're receiving God's grace you're relying upon God's spirit that's not been given to you so that you're beginning to grow increasingly in being obedient to God, and you do that with completeness. You can have someone come in and interact with you, and there's no secrets that they're going to find out. They're going to wipe everything out. Noah found grace in the Lord. He was obedient to God's inner, and he had integrity because he decided to walk with God. The second thing he did is he chose, I'm going to step away from this perverse and violent generation. In our culture, the big thing that's pushing our kids is everyone's doing it. And this all that you're trying to teach me, mom and dad, is against the flow. Our culture holds, if we decide 51% that it's okay to take drugs, then it's okay to take drugs. Our culture decides if 51% decide it's okay to be gay, then it's okay to be gay. What are we going to do when we decide it's, if 51% decide it's all right to take your money that you've earned and give it to me? See, that's where our culture is. That's what Satan always says. He says you can decide what's right and wrong. That's what the serpent tempted Eve in the garden. You can decide what's right and wrong, and our culture is in the midst of doing that. And you're going to need to decide whether I will listen like Noah did. This book is going to tell me what the standards are and I'm going to accurately understand it, and I'm going to stand against my generation and not become corrupt. So that means this week, very concretely, as a dad especially, as a grandfather this week, when you go out into business, 
when you're around the table, like I often tell you, and they're deciding to do something that's unjust, that goes against what God's word says, to tell a little lie, to be a little bit deceitful, at the table, you raise your hand and say, I'm not going to do that. I cannot do that. It's very possible that could happen this week. And that's what it really means to be a Noah person. It means that you decide, I'm going to care of my whole society. And if you find yourself saying, well, everybody does that. I'm in the construction industry. Everybody lied in the construction industry. Everyone says they can do stuff they can't do. And it's part of the industry that you exaggerate. And if I don't exaggerate, then I'm not going to get any jobs. I need believers that will join Noah and say, I don't care if the whole construction industry does that. I'm not going to do that. That's what it means. I'm really serious. This needs to happen during the week. That's what it meant to be a Noah. Then Noah decided, I'm going to trust a provision that only God could provide. And for Noah, it meant building an ark. And it was a crazy thing to build an ark. And for over 100 years, he built the ark and told the people the flood is coming. And what's amazing is his sons helped him do this. So I want you to think really hard about that story. This is an amazing dad. Because he got his sons to join him in what looked like, from a human standpoint, one of the nuttiest things in the world. They built this gigantic ship on dry land. And there's never been rain before. Okay? Now, you don't need to build a ship. Pat Reagan could build a ship really well. You know, Skip could build a ship really well. I would have to have their help. So aren't you glad the Lord isn't asking us to build a ship? By the way, he's even asking us to build a building. What he's asking for, and this is an amazing thing, in the New Testament, when it talks about Noah, it says not that we have a new ark, but we have a great deliverer who went through the flood for us. He didn't float on top of the flood, which was the divine judgment. Now, listen really carefully to me, because Peter uses a very interesting symbol. It would be easy for me to preach about the ark of safety. Jesus is the ark of safety. The New Testament doesn't really talk like that. What the New Testament says is that you have been joined with Christ in your baptism in the waters of destruction. And then you made it through that divine judgment and you live to new life. Jesus is much greater than an ark. Jesus went through the floodwaters of divine judgment on Calvary, and he took the rap for us. He took the penalty for us. And then he conquered our biggest enemy that resulted from our fall, the curse of death. And you're asking your family not to help you build an ark. You're asking your family to trust in the ultimate Savior who experienced the judgment of God, he fully died for us in our place, and you're challenging your family to trust completely in that amazing grace that if you just open yourself to receive Jesus into your life, then the Son of God will send his Spirit to live inside of you, and you'll be safe forever. So we can say over all your family, all is well, all is safe. The final thing I want to share with you this morning is in Genesis chapter 9, Noah makes it through the flood. You know this story. They send out a dove. First of all, they send a raven. The raven flies all over the place. Then he sends off the little dove, and the dove can't find any place to land. So if you're a veterinarian or you love animals, 
The scripture's saying that good daddies and good grandfathers love little doves because Noah takes the little dove. Even after being in this boat with these guys, not for a few days out in the Caribbean, these guys were out there for, for days and days and days, more than 100 days on this flood water. Noah is still gracious to the animals. Take the little dove in. Finally, they're able to let it out, and it comes out with a little twig in his mouth. He knows, and he comes out of the ark, and this is a new beginning. This is the new world. This is the world you live in. Will the serpent seed be gone forever? Did the seed of the woman Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth, did they produce only the promised seed? Noah plants a vineyard, plants some grapes. He gets the grape, makes some incredible wine. He drinks too much of it, and he becomes drunk. And when you get drunk, he did a shameful thing. He took off all of his clothes. So we're back in Genesis. They were both naked and unashamed when they sin. Now they are ashamed to have their clothes off. You need to teach your kids from the time they're really small. Our culture on the serpent side says take your clothes off. So your little girls are taught to take their clothes off from the time they're small. You mamas need to really get involved in this because you live in a corrupt culture. Our little girls are trained from the time they're small that they're sex objects. And that's their identity. And part of that is you take off your clothes. And the boys are taught, lots of men in our church are wrestling. This is what's wrong with pornography. You're looking at the wrong nakedness. When the Lord gives you a covenant woman and the Lord gives you a wife that you can sleep with and produce kids with and you'll produce a family and produce godly kids, you can enjoy the nakedness. The servant says, no, 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 no. You can enjoy the nakedness with everybody. And we got to get in there slugging because Noah was the righteous man in his generation. Now he's drunk and naked. And Ham, his son, is disrespectful. He comes in, sees his dad, and laughs about it. And that's where a ton of your kids are. My little grandkids do potty language in the car. Anybody know what that's like? You all sit there so piously you got to start wearing from their tall. We don't talk like that. The little kids, they're not just little angels. They talk about nakedness. They talk about dirtiness. They will start experimenting unless you get in there slugging. And when they're 13 and 14, they'll start doing a lot of things that are shameful. It happened in Noah's family. So Noah ends up cursing his grandson Canaan. The reason he did that, the Lord isn't sending an automatic curse on Canaan. Canaan in the development, in that line, becomes the Canaanites who worship sex and violence. And that's the enemy of Israel in the book of Joshua. You're going to have lots of opportunities. When we talk about Abram, the Lord's going to give opportunities for the Canaanites to turn away. Real important. As we close here today, what I'm really concerned about a lot of you dads is you feel ashamed. Like all of my life, I've been living in this Bible culture, born-again believers. And so you have a really powerful leader, powerful preacher, and he gets drunk one night. And he does something shameful. That's the end. Because he didn't measure up. So what we do is we have a whole bunch of powerful men and women that don't ever really tell what's happened in their life. Some of you are wrestling with drunkenness today. Some of you are wrestling with illicit nakedness. 
in the story of the Bible, the scripture's telling us that really bad things will flow from that. But there's also grace because Noah still found grace in the eyes of the Lord. His sin had great consequences. It produced the judgment upon Canaan and the Canaanites. But we're going to have one story after another where the Canaanites respond, like Ruth and Moab and people like that. Some of you men, some of your grandfathers are saying, Dave, I can't be a man that walked with God this morning. I'll never be righteous. I'll never be blameless because of my secret. And the scriptures tell us to today, the evil one, the serpent is trying to shame you and then he blocks you. If you are in your third marriage this morning and you look back upon your first two marriages and you did a lot of naked, drunken things like Noah did that day, as you sit here today, the evil one's saying, you can't ever be a person that walked with God. You can't ever be a dad and a grandfather that produces the godly seed. Oh, yeah, you can. Noah did it. And one of the most important things you can do is to say, I'm not going to listen to the serpent anymore. I'm not going to let him shame me anymore. I'm going to go back to where we started. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Well, you know what it means to find grace? It's when you're drunk and naked and it brings a curse on your family, you begin to walk with God again. You go back to God, say, God, forgive me. I need your precious son to cleanse my sin away to renew fellowship with me. And then you rest on that amazing forgiveness. And then you start walking with God again. I want it to be said of every single family in this room that all your kids are safe. All of them are well. Not because they were delivered from a little island in the Antarctic Ocean, but because they've been delivered from the final judgment because Jesus teaches us that the judgment of the flood is only a foreshadowing of the ultimate judgment that's going to come at the end of time when Jesus sets up his kingdom and then he's going to purge the earth again. And I want every one of you as my precious friends to be safe in him, forgiven in him, filled with grace, filled with integrity because you're walking with him because you've received grace and favor in the eyes of the Lord.